Establishing data link. Four, three, two, one. You are listening to the ABI 1.0 podcast, a podcast for the curious. Howdy, and welcome to the ABI 1.0 podcast. I'm your host, Terry Thompson. Well, I think for this episode, we ought to keep it light. So, how about light, like, uh, the sun? Yeah, let's look at the sun. Oh, well, don't look directly at it, but you get my drift when I return. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. We're not in a rush to be most popular. Not in a rush not to be. Real bourbon, no apologies. If it's for you, you'll know. The sun, as the source of energy and light for life on Earth, has been a central object in culture and religion since prehistory. Ritual solar worship has given rise to solar deities in theistic traditions throughout the world, and solar symbolism is ubiquitous. Apart from its immediate connection to light and warmth, the sun is also important in timekeeping as the main indicator of the day and the year. Cultures and religions that have practiced prominent sun worship include the Incas of Peru, the Nabataeans who built the city of Petra in Jordan, and Shintoism in Japan. One of the most important gods for the Inca civilization in South America was the sun god Inti. And let's not forget about Ra of the Egyptians. When we talk about finding out about the stars in the heavens in Middle Ages, pre-Enlightenment time, remember, the scientific disciplines were much different back then. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... Galileo Galilei, father of modern science.
Galileo Galilei was an Italian physicist, mathematician, astronomer, and philosopher, and one of the pioneers of the scientific method. Galileo overturned the Aristotelian worldview according to which the world can be explained primarily through logic. For example, Aristotle had claimed that the velocity of falling bodies is relative to their weight. Logically, even intuitively, that might sound right. But by putting this hypothesis to test, Galileo proved that all objects fall at the same rate of acceleration. Aristotle claimed that falling objects maintain a constant speed. Galileo proved that speed increases in proportion to the distance of the fall. Galileo also refuted the popular Aristotelian belief that Earth is fixed in the center of the universe, while the stars and planets are metaphysical beings that revolved around it. This is known as geocentrism. By means of his improved telescope, Galileo was able to discover four of Jupiter's moons, thus proving that celestial objects can orbit something other than the Earth. And the craters he discovered on the moon's surface refuted Aristotle's belief in the metaphysical nature of the heavens. Galileo then concluded that laws of physics apply equally throughout the universe. Galileo's discoveries confirm the heliocentric model first put forward by Polish mathematician and astronomer Nicholas Copernicus, which argued that despite appearances, the sun neither rises nor sets. It is the Earth that is orbiting the sun. Unfortunately, Galileo failed to convince the church that heliocentrism does not contradict the Bible. A tour in the dungeons of the Inquisition, however, did convince Galileo to recant. He was sentenced to house arrest for the remainder of his life and forbidden from publishing his writings. The ban on the complete, uncensored works of Galileo was lifted only in 1835, almost 200 years after his death. Galileo's paradigm-shifting contribution to a scientific method which is based on experiments is the reason why he is considered by many historians the father of modern physics. I think it's kind of interesting that uh, in 1835, Galileo was finally able to be published, and in 1839, Alexander Edmund Burkell, 1839, came up with the idea of the photovoltaic cell, yes, the solar cell. How about some fun facts about our sun? Not looking too bad for middle age at 4.5 billion years old. The sun has burned off around half its hydrogen stores and has enough left to continue burning hydrogen for another 5 billion years. Currently, the sun is a yellow dwarf star. The sun will eventually be about the size of Earth, however. Once the sun has completed its giant red phase, it will collapse. Its huge mass will be retained, but it will have the volume similar to that of Earth. When that happens, it will be known as a white dwarf. A stellar doppelganger. Astronomers have discovered that our sun may have been born with a twin, and an evil one at that. One hypothesis states that every 27 million years, the evil twin, aptly dubbed Nemesis, returns to wreak havoc on the solar system. 430 quintillion joules. In a single hour, the amount of power from the sun that strikes the Earth is more than the entire world consumes in a year. 
to put that in numbers, from the U.S. Department of Energy, each hour, 430 quintillion joules of energy from the sun hits the earth. And if you're really trying to figure out what musical instrument was utilized in the background music for that last information segment, well, try musical Tesla coils. How about that? And our sun loves to collect things. Asteroids, comets, you name it. It's a collector. And some of the stuff that it's collected since the beginning of the solar system might be worth the trip to go check out. The 16 Psyche asteroid is located in the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. This asteroid is primarily made of iron and nickel. The amount of iron in the asteroid is said to be worth around 10 quintillion U.S. dollars. This is a value exponentially higher than the combined GDP of every country on Earth, which totaled about $74 trillion in 2015. The Psyche mission is expected to be launched in the summer of 2022, and it will arrive at the asteroid in 2026. A quick update on the Psyche mission, Psyche 16 mission. It's been delayed till 2023. Oh well, it'll just mean that it's going to be worth a lot more when we get there. In the future, our society may try to harvest every available ounce of energy that our star, our sun, has to offer. And why not? <laughs> it's free. What if we could engineer a gigantic megastructure capable of harvesting every bit of the sun's energy, something known as a Dyson Sphere? How long would it take to construct this mega shell? Where would we find all the materials needed? And what could we do with the structure once we finally built it? This is what if, and here's what would happen if we could build a Dyson Sphere around the sun. The idea of a Dyson Sphere was, well, stolen from aliens. In 1960, astrophysicist Freeman Dyson theorized another civilization that found a way to meet their ever-increasing energy and space demands. They rearranged their solar system. This hypothetical advanced civilization built a hollow sphere around their own sun and provided themselves with an incredible amount of energy and habitable real estate. But what about us? How would we go about building this space-level structure? Theoretically, if we built a Dyson sphere, we'd have access to a colossal 400 septillion watts of solar energy. That's a trillion times more power than our entire civilization consumes today. The problem is, no known material is strong enough to handle all the space radiation. And even if we created one in very large quantities, a tiny gravitational pull towards the sun would make our solid sphere uninhabitable. Not to mention that it would be totally unstable. Every meteor strike would push a part of the sphere towards the star. But all these issues can be solved with a simple adjustment. Instead of building a solid Dyson sphere, 
we could build a Dyson Swarm, a myriad of solar collectors with their individual orbits around the sun. Let's start with a small station, one that's able to provide the energy needed for this whole construction project. We'd begin on Mercury. It would become our space mine for the iron and oxygen we'd need. From those elements, we'd make highly reflective solar collectors. The giant mirrors would reflect light into a small solar power plant. From there, it would beam the energy to where we need it. We'd probably demolish Mercury entirely before we moved on to Venus, Mars, and the outer planets. Even nearby asteroids would be decimated. However, even just deconstructing Mercury would supply us with enough energy to power up our supercomputers and boost interstellar exploration. Maybe we'd even build Earth-like oases, large rotating space colonies in the habitable zone of our solar system. Maybe if we're lucky, we'd find other, more efficient sources of energy to help us master space travel, like artificially generated black holes. But that's a story for another what if. Or, if you prefer, here's Hollywood's version. They actually do a pretty good job in describing uh, what a Dyson Sphere would be like. We have entered a massive gravitational field, Captain. There are no stars or other stellar bodies listed on our navigational charts. However, sensors indicate the presence of an extremely strong gravitational source in this vicinity. Can you localize the source of the gravitational field? Sensors? I'm having difficulty scanning the object. It appears to be approximately 200 million kilometers in diameter. That's nearly as large as the Earth orbit around the sun. Why didn't we detect this before now? The object's enormous mass is causing a great deal of gravimetric interference. That might have prevented our sensors from detecting it before we dropped out of warp. Mr. Data. be a Dyson Sphere. The object does fit the general parameters of Dyson's theory. A Dyson Sphere? It's a very old theory, number one. I'm not surprised that you haven't heard of it. In the 20th century, a physicist called Freeman Dyson postulated the theory that an enormous hollow sphere could be constructed around a star. This would have the advantage of harnessing all the radiant energy of that star. And any population living on the interior surface would have virtually inexhaustible sources of power. Are you saying you think there are people living in there? Possibly a great number of people, Commander. The interior surface area of a sphere this size is the equivalent of more than 250 million Class M planets. And when our son decides to uh, throw a temper tantrum, look out. The Carrington event was the most intense geomagnetic storm in recorded history, peaking from the 1st to the 2nd of September, 1859, during Solar Cycle 10. It created strong auroral displays that were reported globally, even as far south as the Caribbean, and causing and sparking fires in multiple telegraph stations around the Earth. If it were to happen today, well, let's say there would be no reason to try to even finish this podcast.
To get a closer look at our space weather, let's go to our artificially based intelligent correspondent, Abby. Take it away, Abby. Scientists say the sun is acting up and causing satellites to fall back to Earth. Down, down, down. Most folks probably don't think of satellites as capable of sinking, but according to the European Space Agency, they can and do. Space news site Space.com reported Thursday that ESA scientists had to raise the swarm constellation satellites, which measure Earth's magnetic field, because they were sinking in chaotic space weather. In the last five, six years, the satellites were sinking about two and a half kilometers, 1.5 miles, a year, swarm mission manager Anya Strom, ESA's told. But since December last year, they have been virtually diving. The sink rate between December and April has been 20 kilometers, 12 miles, per year. Although satellites always face a downward drag while in orbit, space weather has been making the sink worse, the ESA said. That's why the International Space Station makes frequent maneuvers to keep itself in orbit and out of the worst of the drag. Heating up. Says that since last fall, the sun has been acting pretty weird in general. A growing sunspot has doubled in size and is pointed directly at the Earth, although scientists say we shouldn't be concerned, but then, how could you not be? A sunspot pointing towards Earth has potential to cause solar flares, but experts told USA Today that this is far from unusual and that the flares would have little effect on the blue planet. AR-3038, or Active Region 3038, has been expanding over the last week, according to Rob Steenberg, Acting Director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Space Weather Forecast Office. That's what sunspots do, he explained. They will, in general, grow over time. They go through stages before decay. According to NASA, sunspots appear darker because they are cooler than other parts of the sun's surface. Sunspots are cooler because they form where strong magnetic fields prevent heat from reaching the surface of the sun. NASA stated that the solar flares are a sudden explosion of energy caused by tangling, crossing, or reorganizing of magnetic field lines near sunspots. You can think of it like the twisting of rubber bands, Steenberg said. If you have a couple of rubber bands twisting around on your finger, they eventually get twisted too much and they break. The difference with magnetic fields is that they reconnect. And when they reconnect, it is in that process that a flare is generated. So I'm back here in Kentucky at the Wild Turkey Distillery. And I want to let you in on something. The folks here and I have created a new small batch burger, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon, no apologies. We here at the ABI 1.0 podcast enjoy hearing from our listeners. As a matter of fact, we get several of our ideas from our listeners. So if you want to contact us, either through voicemail, email, we have a Facebook page, we're on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, Pinterest, oh, let's see. I wanted to put flyers out, but the uh, person in charge of the money said, what are you talking about? Paper. 
It doesn't grow on trees. Let's skip ahead and see what time, lots of time, has in store for our buddy the sun. Like all stars in the universe, the sun is not immortal. The sun was born 4.57 billion years ago. It survives by burning 600 million tons of hydrogen atoms into helium atoms in its core every second. However, there is only a finite amount of hydrogen in the core of the sun. For the next 4 billion years, the sun will continue to fuse hydrogen to make helium. As more helium builds up, the core will shrink. As a result, nuclear fusion reactions accelerate. Faster fusion means more energy output. In 3.5 billion years, the sun will shine 40% brighter than today. At this point, Earth's oceans will boil and the ice caps will permanently melt. All the moisture in the atmosphere will be lost. Life will not likely survive, and Earth will become brutally hot and dry, like Venus. After that, the situation gets worse. 5.4 billion years from now, the sun will exhaust all hydrogen in its core. The core will heat up and get extremely dense, but the sun's outer layer will expand a lot. It could expand big enough to swallow Mercury, Venus, and maybe even Earth. Even if it doesn't grow as far as the Earth, high temperatures will completely burn our planet. Once the sun has emptied its fuel reserves, it will become unstable, and as a result, it will begin to pulse. Each pulse will remove more of the sun's mass until all that's left is a cool, dense core. This core is called a white dwarf. The sun will spend the rest of its days as a white dwarf, slowly cooling and dimming as time passes. By this point, Earth will be completely inhospitable. So with that comforting thought in mind, that's going to do it for this episode about the sun. This is ABI 1.0 Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Thompson. We'll get together next week. Till then, see ya. You have been listening to the ABI 1.0 Podcast. Process complete.